now I'm actually going to introduce our speaker, uh, Rowan Kemp. So, Rowan, would you want to come up? So, Rowan, do you want to just tell us what your role is in the EU? And would you be happy to share with us how you became a Christian? Sure. So, I work with the EU staff team. I lead that staff team. I've been here for about 11 years, working alongside you guys in the EU as we talk about Jesus here at Sydney University. How I became a Christian, I was uh, privileged to grow up in a family which had uh, with a Christian mum and dad. So, they were followers of Jesus, which was a great privilege. In, in retrospect, as I look back on that, that was a great privilege in life. Though, of course, growing up with Christian family or going to church even or going to a Christian school, none of that makes you Christian. And it became apparent to me at certain points in my later teenage years, towards the end of school, that if I was going to take Jesus seriously, then I needed to embrace that for myself. And a few things happened at the sort of late high school that made me realise, oh, I have to make a decision here. Do I really want to, do I think Jesus is who he says he is and am I actually going to follow him? Or am I going to just ignore all of that? And so there were a few key moments and also starting university was one of those moments, I think, again. And each time um, I decided actually, no, I think Jesus is who he says he is. I think he is actually, as the EU t-shirt says, Lord. He's the one who, for, um, who God has put in control of this world. And so therefore I decided actually I need to live for him. So that was a sort of a key sort of moment for me, I think, in that later teenage years. Uh, Rowan's going to come back in a bit uh, to share from God's Word. But first, if you look in your handouts, there will be a small black card called a Connect card. If you could please take the next 30 or so seconds to fill one out so we know that you've been here. Um, and I'll give you some time to think about that now. For now, I'm just going to invite Rowan up to speak to us. We all like to avoid bad news. Everyone likes to avoid bad news, especially if the bad news seems inevitable. Imagine you go to a class this afternoon and the lecturer says, oh, by the way, just forgot to tell you, you've got this massive exam. You don't account for 100% of your semester's mark. And it's also on some stuff that I haven't really got around to teaching you just yet. What would you, how would you feel when faced with the inevitability, the seeming inevitability of a fail? Sometimes you might just say, well, you know what? I can't do anything about it. I may as well just ignore it. What do you do if you're stuck in a relationship that seems like it's going nowhere? What do you do if there's a debt, a financial debt, that you've incurred on your credit card that's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger, sort of out of control, and you don't really know what to do with it, and you just can't work out any way to... Sometimes ignorance feels like bliss. Sometimes it feels easier just to stick my head in the sand and ignore the inevitable bad news that's coming my way. And maybe if it really is inevitable, maybe if there really is nothing you can do about it, maybe that's not a bad strategy. But of course, if it is avoidable, if it turns out that it's not, not actually inevitable, if someone says to you, oh, that exam... Here's how you can pass it without breaking any laws. And if someone says, that relationship that feels like it's going nowhere, here's how you can rescue it. Or that financial debt that you've got, here's how you can have it cancelled. Well, you'd be crazy to turn your back on that, wouldn't you? You'd grab hold of it because here is a way to, uh, to get past what seems to be 
inevitable, inevitable bad news. Well, today I want to talk to you about something that seems inevitable. I want to talk to you about our own death. Death seems inevitable. And it's not something any of us like talking about. But the reason I want to talk to you about it is not because here is inevitable bad news, but it's because Jesus of Nazareth claims to be the only person who has power over death to turn what seems to be an inevitability into something that is entirely avoidable. And like any sort of moment of good news, I'd love you to grab hold of it. That's what we're going to talk about today. Now, when we think about death, we don't like to think about it, but death does strike us as entirely inevitable. George Bernard Shaw, I don't believe he talked very much about mathematics, but he did make this statement. He said, the statistics on death are quite impressive. One out of one people die. I don't like to think about it particularly, but the day will come when I die. And every single one of my friends will also die. And it genuinely makes me sad to think this, but every single member of my family will also die. And I want to say it as gently and respectfully as I can, but you too will die. One out of one people die. The Persians had a way of saying it much more prosaically. I quite like this. The Persians had a proverb. Death is a camel that lies down at every door. Makes the same point. I mean, you've got to imagine yourself living in the Middle East, and if a camel comes and plonks itself down at your, the door of your tent, the door of your dwelling. There's not much you can do about it when there's a camel lying down in your doorway. You can't get around the camel. You can't escape the camel. You can't sidestep the camel. The camel is inevitable. It's just there. Death is the camel that lies down at every door. We don't like to talk about these things. I understand that. Uh, there's a Jewish proverb that captures that well. I think it says, every person knows they will die, but no one wants to believe it. We live our life trying to escape this seeming inevitability of death, either with some sort of superficial bravado, oh, we don't care, it's fine, or, or maybe even just with some sort of claim that death is just a nothing, or... We just busy ourselves with life so that we don't have to think about the termination point that is inevitably coming. Our own death that we have to face first. That's not our first encounter with death, usually. Anne-Louise Germain de Staal said this a couple of hundred years ago. She said, we understand death for the first time when he puts his hand upon one whom we love. That's when we realise 
the sadness of death. When death claims one we love. That's when we realize how powerless we are in the face of death. We can rage against it all we like, but we can do nothing to stop its seemingly inevitable end. And the, our overwhelming sort of hopelessness in the face of death, therefore, just floods us. We live lots of our life, I think, with some sort of fear of death, a fear that we try to push down deep and not have to deal with. Fear of our own death, fear of the death of those we love. Samuel Johnson was once, once asked about this. He was asked, is not the fear of death natural to man? His response was, so much so, sir, that the whole of life is but keeping away the thought of it. We spend our whole life trying to just distract ourselves from the thought of it, put it off as much as we can. Contrast all of these famous people's sayings about death and its inevitability with what Jesus of Nazareth said. Feel the contrast in what he said in this next statement. Jesus of Nazareth said, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. This is quite an extraordinary claim here. It flies in the face of all those, those other statements. Is, is death not the camel that lies down at every door? Jesus says, whoever believes in me will never die. And notice Jesus doesn't claim here to have some sort of magic elixir of life. He doesn't claim to have some sort of philosopher's stone to give you sort of immortality. What's the secret according to Jesus? It's, it's Jesus himself. Notice what he says here. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus is making an astounding claim here to over, overthrow death, to overturn death entirely. Now, that's an incredible claim to make. How do you know he could do it? How can you know he could believe such an incredible claim? Well, the thing is, when Jesus actually made this statement, he didn't just make the statement, he then did something to demonstrate to everybody who heard him that he really could deliver. It is, what he did is incredible in itself. And it's only maybe surpassed by the incredibleness of what Jesus claims. But now what is this going to read out for us the account in which this Jesus makes this statement and you, you listen and you see what Jesus does and then you decide, can he actually deliver on this claim or not? Um, so we're now going to read from God's word, uh, as Rowan just said. If you've got a Bible, um, it would be great if you could turn to John chapter 11. Um, we'll be reading from uh, verse 1 to 44. No, from 17, 17 to 44, sorry. Um, so that's John 11, 17 to 44. Um, if you don't have a Bible, you can read uh, along with me on the screen. 
Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her were also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said on this account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. By any account, it's quite an astounding event that is narrated here by John, one of the eyewitnesses who was there at the time. But you do notice that actually what Jesus did, he was not done in private. What he said about himself and what he did at Lazarus's tomb was done in front of a large crowd of witnesses. And John records it so that, in a way, it's like you're there. Like you can sort of see and hear what's happening. So that you might understand exactly who this guy Jesus really is. Now, just we jumped into the story at uh, verse 17, sort of partway through the chapter. So just to give you a little bit of the back story of what's happened up to this particular point, getting our heads around the account. The chapter starts off by telling us Lazarus is sick. We know that Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, they're friends of Jesus. John tells us Jesus loved these guys. They were, they were friends. They had a, a, good, a strong relationship. Lazarus gets sick, presumably more than just a bit of a sniffle. 
because the sisters send word to Jesus, who is renowned as a, a miraculous healer, Lord, the one you love is sick. In other words, get here, heal him. You can, rest, you can save his life. But Jesus does something very unusual. Jesus does not go. He actually deliberately delays for two days. Now, if someone is really, really sick, is approaching death, and you had the ability, the power from God to heal, why would you not go? Why would you delay? That sounds very callous. But hang on, we've just told Jesus loves these guys. So he's not being callous. No, he's actually making a point. And if you have a look in your Bible there, you can actually see, uh, Jesus says that in the beginning of John chapter 11, verse 4, Jesus said, This illness does not lead to death, rather it is for God's glory, so that the Son of God, speaking about himself, may be glorified through it. What's the point Jesus is trying to make? Jesus is saying, even though I'm waiting two days until Lazarus dies, as he makes clear later on, I'm waiting for Lazarus to die, but this will not ultimately end in death. And the reason I'm waiting is so that the Son of God, talking about himself, might be glorified through what I do. That is, that my identity might be revealed to everybody through what I do. So he waits two days, waits until Lazarus dies, and then heads, ultimately to reveal something about who he is. So what happens next? Jesus delays, we've said that, Jesus heads there towards, and before he even gets to the tomb, um, he sees all the people weeping and crying. And we read, Issa read out there for us that Jesus was greatly moved. Now the word that John uses there is, um, John uses there is the same word that was used to describe when a horse snorts in anger. Have you seen it when horses sort of like that? When a horse snorts, that's the word that John uses that Jesus is angry. He's outraged. He's indignant over what he's seeing. He's seeing all these people weep for poor old Lazarus who's died. He's indignant outrage. Why? But that's not his only reaction. We also read there that he also, when he, when he sees them, he weeps. So Jesus has two reactions here. He's outraged, indignant, and also weeping. Now, why is he weeping? Well, Lazarus has died. Is that why? He's... No, but he said, this will not end in death. He knows he's going to do something that means that Lazarus is not going to stay dead. So why would he be weeping? I take it that he's outraged and he's weeping because of the effect that Lazarus's death, what that represents. It represents the stranglehold that death has on humanity. That this is not how the one true living God intends life to go, ending with this sort of death and grief. And so Jesus, confronted with that amongst his friends, he is angry. And he's indignant and he's sad about the effect that death has on us and the sin, the moral culpability that has resulted in death. There's some of Jesus' reactions. And then he gets to the tomb and he says to Martha, Lazarus' sister, roll away the stone. Now, 
by this point, Lazarus has been dead for four days. And if you're not a medical person, let me just tell you that after four days, our bodies start to decompose. There's, it's a very smelly situation. And so Martha says, Lord, he's been dead four days. I mean, there's going to be a terrible smell. In fact, in the old King James Version, it actually said, but Lord, by now he stinketh. <laughs> Which sort of captures the problem, right? Look at Jesus' response. Look at Jesus' response. Jesus said to Martha, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? You're going to see an amazing work of God here. But you need to believe in me. You need to trust me. And I'm saying, roll away the stone. So they took away the stone. What happened next? Jesus prayed. And Jesus looked upwards and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I've said this for the sake of the crowd standing here so that they may believe that you sent me. He, he make, wants to make it very clear that what he's about to do is revealing to the crowd who he is, that he's the one sent by God, the Heavenly Father, sent amongst us as humanity. And because of his identity, he's able to do these things. He's trying to make that clear in his prayer to people. And then, when he'd said this, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now, that must have been a very, very weird moment. Imagine for a moment, we're the crowd, Jesus is down the front here, there's the tomb, they've rolled away the big stone, and Jesus is standing there and just says, Lazarus, come out. Where are you going to look at that point? I mean, I reckon you'd be torn. You're either looking at this guy, Jesus, and you're going, you're one crazy dude. Like, seriously, you're calling out to a dead guy. Like, who would go to a graveyard and stand in front of a, a grave and say, Johnny, come out? You would just think they're crazy, right? Are you looking at Jesus? Or, or do you go, well, I don't, I don't know. I'm, are you looking into the tomb to see what's going to happen? This is an incredible thing to do. Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. His hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. He's wearing the grave clothes like some sort of mummified penguin, you know, like he's just sort of staggering out with the clothes still wrapped around him. He's been, he's been called back into life just with a word from this Jesus. I, and the crowd at that point is just sort of going, big, big open mouth, right? Just look. They're not doing anything. That's why I think Jesus has to give the next instruction. He actually says, unbind him, let him go. What do you make of this? What do you make of this story? This incident, this eyewitnessed moment. Uh, interestingly, I think, 
Jesus had already given an indication that he was going to do something like this. Earlier on in John's account about Jesus' teaching, he records Jesus saying these words. Very truly I tell you, the hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. He's saying, just as God, Heavenly Father, has life in Himself, can grant life as He pleases, He's he's given that same thing to God the Son, the person of Jesus. And so, yes, the dead will hear the voice and come alive. And and for Lazarus, that's exactly what happened. He heard the voice of the Son of God saying, Lazarus, come out! And he did. (laughs) Called back from death. Just with a word. Now, what do we make of this story? How are we going to interpret it? Well, actually, the key to understanding the significance of this story is you've got to go a little bit earlier in the story as Jesus is actually just on the way to the tomb because he has a conversation with Mary and Martha. Remember, that's the point where Jesus made this statement. On the way to the tomb, he'd said, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. What's Jesus actually saying here? Let's think about it for a moment. See, we are used to this pattern of life. You live, and then sadly, you die. That's how we expect things to go. But what does Jesus say here in this statement? He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. That is, he's saying this, right? Even though they die, they will live. And that's certainly what happened to Lazarus, isn't it? He was dead, called back with a word into life. But that's not all Jesus says. What else does he say there? He also says, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. That is, isn't he, isn't he adding a second stage here? Isn't he adding... This? Everyone who dies and believes in me will live, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Now, that's not what Lazarus got. Lazarus got a pretty cool and impressive resuscitation, right? It was a pretty impressive moment with the electric paddles, you know, but without the paddles, right? It was just Jesus with a word saying, come back. But he was just resuscitated. It was a momentary, temporary reprieve from the snares of death, brought back to life. But then eventually, Lazarus died again. I mean, otherwise, he'd still be kicking around somewhere, right? You could go and see him. But he's, he's dead. But what Jesus is saying here is even bigger than what Lazarus got. That's because Lazarus, what he did with Lazarus was just the little gelato taster spoon. You know when you go to the gelato shop and you're going to sort of lay down some cash for sort of a big sort of thing of gelato, but they can get those little taster spoons, so you see how many taster spoons you can get, how generous will they be before they make you actually buy something? Well, those, Lazarus got the little taster spoon. He got a little taste of what Jesus actually is promising, but he didn't get the full gelato. 
the full gelato is this, to live and never die. Lazarus was just the little preemptive shadow, the little sign, the little indicator of exactly what Jesus was on, what had on offer. And you know what? If you read on in John's account of Jesus' life, you will get to the point where Jesus himself dies. He's executed by the Romans, by crucifixion. And if you read on in John's account, what happens after Jesus himself dies? Three days later, he rises back to life, but not like Lazarus. When Jesus comes back to life, it is a transformed physical body that he is given by God. He comes back with flesh and bones like you or me, but it's a transformed physical body, one that is now free from disease, one that is now immortal, one that now will no longer live in perpetual decline into death, one that is life, all in capital letters with double exclamation points, eternal life. That's the real deal, the real gelato. That's what Jesus comes to secure and offer all of us. And Lazarus was just a little taster, a little indicator that, yep, that's what I can really give. So it leaves us with two questions. First question is then, how can Jesus do this? Second question is, how can I get this? But let's think about the first one. How can Jesus do this? Well, there's two reasons he can do this. First of all, because of what he has done, and secondly, because of who he is. Let's think, first of all, because of what he has done. What I mean is this. The reason Jesus and Jesus alone can give that sort of eternal life, immortal life, is because he died. Now, that sounds counterintuitive and may not be obvious, so I need to explain it. What I mean is, if you read right through the Bible, it makes crystal clear that human death, human death is not natural in sort of inverted commas. That is, according to the one true living God's original good plans and intentions, we were not created for death. The one true living God who created and loves us and sustains us created us for life eternal life, perpetual life. But tragically, we all have turned our back on that one true living God and we've refused to let him be God in our life. We've refused his word and his ways and his wisdom. We've said, no, thanks for creating us, we're going to do it our way. With all the foolishness that comes with that. This is the sad stupidity of what the Bible calls sin. And what's the one true living God's response to that sort of rejection of him? His just, fair response is death. Then you will not live forever. And every single one of us have chosen that path and therefore every single one of us end in death. So, so what can Jesus do to rescue us out of that situation according to the plan of the one true living God who made us and loved us? What he can do is he can take my death price, your death price. He can take the death price of the whole world and he can pay it in our stead. 
And that is the wonderful plan. That's the good Christian news of the gospel, that the one true living God sent his son, Jesus, to become one of us and to actually take as our representative and our substitute, take all of our sin, all of our rejection of God and go and pay the death price for that for us. And now that the death price has been paid, yes, Jesus can now give you life, even though you and I do not deserve it. In fact, even just on a bit further in John chapter 11, uh, you get a, you, you're told about this, same chapter. A bit later on, John records for us that Caiaphas, who was the Jewish high priest at the time, without realising it, talked about exactly what Jesus' death was going to achieve in these terms. Caiaphas, we read, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you do not understand that it is better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed. And then John comments, he did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was about to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but to gather into one the dispersed children of God. Jesus dies as the representative and substitute for, for the people, in their place, as their representative and substitute. And because the death price has been paid, Jesus can now offer life. So the reason Jesus can offer life is because of what he has done, but it's also, secondly, because of who he is. What I mean is this, as we just encounter this story and you think about Jesus standing there saying to a dead man, Lazarus, come out, and the dead person, four days dead, body decaying, walking out, you might say, sounds great, but it just can't happen. I mean, that breaks every law of biology and science that we know, doesn't it? That a four-day dead person could just be resuscitated? What about all the cells? What about the decaying and decomposing parts of the body? That can't happen. Well, let's think about that for a moment. I'm a big fan of science. I did a science degree here at Sydney University. I did a PhD in the Faculty of Science here at Sydney University. If you gave me a T-shirt that said, science is tops, I would wear it happily. Because I really, I think science is tops. I love science, right? But any honest assessment of human understanding in the scientific realm, any honest assessment must acknowledge that there is just oodles of stuff. That's a technical scientific word, by the way oodles of stuff out there that we do not yet understand. From the very, very, very large to the very, very, very tiny, there is stacks that we just do not yet understand or know. In fact, if you took all of human scientific understanding, as awesome as it is, it would just be a smidgen, maybe just the first few chapters of the total volumes of how the world works. There's so much we don't yet know. So do you really want to just pronounce, it's not possible, never, ever possible? Maybe a little bit of epistemic humility might just cause you to go, well, maybe? Moreover, if, if there is a God, and if that God is as Christians claim, the one true living God is as revealed in the Bible. The God who created all things out of nothing, 
sustains all things, if could that being, that God, if he existed, bring a dead person back to life? Well, I guess if he's created the entire universe, if he sustains, I, he could, right? He could break his own, air quotes, natural laws in order to do that if he wanted to. Moreover, if Jesus is who he says he is, the one true living God, God the eternal son, come as a human being amongst us, could he call a dead person back out to life? I mean, if you turn up to a grave and back to life, if I was lying dead here in the front of the chemistry building and been lying here for four days, and you walked up and said, Rowan, get up! It's not going to happen. But if God the eternal son became a human being and walked amongst us and was confronted with the tragedy of death and said, Lazarus, come out. Do you think he could do it? The reason he could do it is because of who he was, who he is. Now, that, that may not sit well with you just yet. You might say, oh, I'm not sure about that. That feels a big call. Then I'm so glad you're here. Do yourself a favour and find out more about this guy, Jesus. On the EU little connect card you got, there's a box you can tick. It says, yeah, I'd like to investigate Jesus. Do yourself a favour, tick that box. And then someone from the EU will get back in contact with you and say, how can we help you read the Bible for yourself and encounter this living Jesus? Because he can do this because of who he is and there is no one else like him. Well, the last question I wanted to ask you was, how can I get hold of this? And there's a simple one-word answer. Believe. Uh, all the way through this account, time and time again, the issue is raised, do you believe in this Jesus? When, before Jesus even sets out, while he's waiting for Lazarus to die, he says to his disciples, this has happened so that you might believe. When he meets Martha along the way, he says, do you believe? When he gets in front of the tomb and sees the see, praise, he says, this is so that the crowds might believe. The whole point of this incident is so that you can see who Jesus is and that you might entrust yourself to him. Believing in Jesus is, um, is not just about cognitively sort of recognising, oh, okay, so you're this guy. It's about entrusting yourself to him. It's like, do you believe in seatbelts? Like when you get into a car and the seatbelt's there, you say, hi, seatbelt, I believe in you. No, what do you do? If you believe in seatbelts, you put it on, right? You entrust yourself to the seatbelt. Unless, of course, you're a motorcyclist, in which case you don't believe in seatbelts and you're a bit crazy, <laughs> right? But believing means entrusting. And so Jesus said, you want to get this? You want to get this life in capital letters with double exclamation points? The life that, where you will never die? Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who believes in me will never die. And he said to Martha, do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. Do you believe it? Do you believe him? He's the only one who can give you this sort of life. Go back to where we started. Remember I said, um, 
if you are faced with that exam that it just seems inevitable you're going to fail, and someone says to you, here's how you can pass, you'd grab hold of that. Or you're in that relationship that's going nowhere, they say, here's how you can rescue it. You grab hold of it. Here's how you can cancel that seeming impossible debt. You grab hold of it. Faced with the seeming inevitability of your death and those of every single person you know, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life you want it? Will you believe in him? Because he wants to give you what you can get nowhere else. I hope you can come back over the next couple of weeks. We're going to keep talking about this over the next two weeks. As think of other parts of the New Testament that talk about the resurrection of Jesus and what it means for us. It would be great to have you come along, bring your friends along over the next two weeks because we think this is a vital question for every single human being on the planet to engage with, because only in Jesus is this life. Um, how about I pray for us? So would you please bow your head in prayer? Heavenly Father, we just thank you uh, for your son. We thank you, God, that um, if we believe in him and in you, um, that we can have that eternal life. Um, Father, we thank you that death is not inevitable. Um, Lord, that you have promised us um, that there uh, will be an end to suffering and that you have promised that um, our broken bodies one day will uh, no longer be diseased. But Lord, that um, if we respond to you, um, that we can um, share in uh, yeah, your new kingdom and your new creation um, in heaven uh, in a perfect relationship with you. Um, Father, we thank you that um, in your mercy you've shown this to us, um, not just through raising Lazarus, but, Lord, in raising your son. Um, and we thank you that because of that, um, yeah, we can actually think about this for ourselves um, and think about whether or how we uh, want to respond to that. And I just pray that um, throughout this week we'll be dwelling um, on what we've heard today and um, help us, Lord, to uh, respond to that in our lives and not just um, leave that as a thought um, in our minds. And I pray this in the name of your son. Amen.